Carrie Newcomer is a wonderful Quaker singer-songwriter, and there's a line from one of her songs that's lingered with me since I first heard it a few years ago. She laments, or maybe she confesses, that we've been traveling faster than our souls can go. Can you relate in our globalized, always connected internet age? I suspect that from time to time, most of us have found ourselves traveling faster than our souls can go. Now, don't get me wrong, I like to move fast, be efficient, get things done, but maintaining a rapid pace without breaks sometimes for rest and renewal and reconnection risks burnout. And on one level, we know that, but there are many competing forces in our culture constantly trying to convince us that there's never enough. So we have to work endlessly harder to buy ever more stuff and always have the latest, newest version of everything. Coupled with our human inclination to seek instant gratification, it can be easy, despite our best intentions, to end up with a recipe, again, of traveling faster than our souls can go. In contrast, when I consider, well then, what might it mean, so to speak, to travel at the speed of soul? I'm reminded of one of the main tenets of the three-year spiritual direction program that I completed almost a decade ago. They said, now we're going to start slowly so that later, maybe, we can slow down. This countercultural approach requires giving ourselves permission to experience value in contemplation, value in taking time for spiritual practices, value in reconnecting with who we really are, not just all the things people tell us we should be. That's called shooting on yourself. You, you may or may not know that term. Uh, this, or others shooting on you, right? That happens as well. Um, This past week, I had the opportunity to experiment with slowing down on an eight-day meditation retreat in North Carolina. I attended a similar eight-day retreat with the same group in summer 2016. There's a lot to say about the experience, but don't worry, I won't bore you with the detailed minutia of my inner life. Uh, And some of you may be quite clear that spending a week meditating is very much not on your bucket list. But for those of you who are even a little bit what I sometimes call contemplative curious, it may be helpful to lift the veil a little about what is it that happens on a meditation retreat. Have any of you been on like an eight or ten day meditation retreat? Okay, so I'm not seeing a lot of hands. All right. By far the most common question I've received over the years in regard to long retreats is, so do you really just sit on the cushion for like eight hours? Like, what's going on? The answer is not quite. For the truly data-driven among us, there were four hours of sitting practice each day, three hours of moving meditation, and three hours of other related activities, such as guided meditation, social meditation, teachings. Uh, In total, that is 10 hours of structured contemplative activity, but that still leaves another 14 hours in the day, which includes at least an hour-long break after each meal, more than enough time for more than eight hours of sleep, etc., Now, that schedule may sound like heaven to at least a few of you. To others, it may sound like a contemplative hellscape. Uh, 
Either way, I'll let you in on the open secret about meditation retreats. Uh, I can't speak for absolutely all retreats, but the fairly widespread practice, and I've talked to a lot of people about it, is that basically it tends to be that no single meditation session, within the long, no matter how long the retreat is, is ever longer than about 45 minutes. Now, that may still seem like way too long to some of you, and if so, fair enough. But here's the good news for those of you who may feel some sort of contemplative inkling that you may want to go deeper into that at some point. The good news is that if you ever build up the capacity to meditate for 45 minutes at once, that you have already have the primary building block out of which a retreat schedule is built, no matter how long, you know, three days, three weeks, three months. People go on three-year retreats. You may or may not know that. Like, that's the sort of... Uh, uh, and on the retreat I just returned from, the four hours of formal sitting practice, you didn't do four hours at a time. That was in 30 to 45 minute chunks spread throughout the day, interspersed with 30 or 45 minutes of either moving meditation or meals or sleep or whatever. Along these lines, I was glad to hear that on Wednesday, nine members and friends of this congregation attended the first meeting of our new weekly Wednesday midday uh, meditation group that actually included 45 minutes of silent meditation. So that's, I was really glad to hear that. And of course, I love talking about Buddhism. It's important to study and discuss the tradition, but to make progress, at some point, you have to stop talking and actually do it, right? That as that contemporary book title says, um, don't just do something, sit there. Now, all that being said, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going straight from, boom, clocked my first 45 minutes, let's sign up for an eight-day retreat. Uh, work your way up, you know, to experiment with adding a second sit, you know, maybe 20, 30, 45 minutes at the end of the day, or attend one of the monthly three-hour mini-retreats that Irene and Glass and I are co-leading. The next one is Saturday. If you need some basic meditation instructions on how to get started, there's some really good resources linked on the um, Buddhism website of, of our congregations at frederickuorg slash Buddhism. But to widen our focus a little from there, I invite you to consider actually the many ways that training spiritually for an experience like a meditation retreat, that first part of our mission statement, encouraging spiritual growth, it isn't actually that out there and esoteric and foreign as one may or may not think. Uh, rather, it's actually not that different from training physically for a competition or training mentally to complete a degree. In any of these arenas, if you work your way up incrementally, you can often build a surprisingly high capacity over a relatively short period of time, but it does take some time and effort. There's a lot of related stories I could tell you about my own success and failures in various regards, and I encourage you to think about parallels in your own life to share just a few thumbnail sketches. Physically, I could share with you, you know, the success stories of incremental training that I've done to complete both a half marathon and a sprint triathlon, or from the other direction, I could tell you about my repeated failures in training for an Olympic distance triathlon, that both times I very seriously tried to do that. Halfway through the four-month training period, about the same, I was just like, I've got other things to do with my life. I just don't have the time to do this, or I choose not to have the time to do it. I choose to do other things. Um, 
uh, or intellectually, I could tell you about the major aha moment I had in successfully completing my doctoral dissertation. I was really sort of finding it imposing, like, how do I write a 200-plus page paper? I just was like, I don't know how to make that jump. And then suddenly I realized that I didn't have to do that per se. I could instead think of it as writing five thematically linked 30-page chapters. And I knew how to write a 30-page chapter. Uh, add an introduction, conclusion, and you're there. Now, it took some time and some incremental writing, but I did it. From the other direction, though, I could also tell you how to date I have failed to carve out time to publish my dissertation. Um, I just haven't done it. I, I hope to soon, but I haven't yet carved out the time and energy. It's, all these things are easier said than done, right? We can map them out, but life is messy. It gets in the way, so we have to negotiate all of that. Overall, each of us always has the opportunity to discern what area we may be called or able in, in this particular season of our life to focus on. Um, what might that be for us now? What all is possible to do with these minds, these bodies, these emotions, these spirits that we find ourselves um, equipped with? Along those lines, let me tell you just a little bit about why I did feel led to attend a second eight-day meditation retreat last week, why I plan to likely return for a two-week retreat this summer, why I've been taking time since June to co-lead these semi-monthly um, meditation retreats here at UUCF. Because for whatever confluence of reasons, I've always been really interested in learning about other people's experiences of what is possible on the journey of spiritual growth. One of the great books I read this past week that does just that is titled Waking, Dreaming, Being, Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation, and Philosophy. It's by Evan Thompson uh, with Columbia University Press. But over the years, I have found myself dissatisfied with just hearing about people's second, just hearing secondhand about people's experiences, or I would actually add alleged experiences, because I can't help, just to be honest with you, thinking that when I read about other people's spirit. I'm like, allegedly, I guess that, that seems true for you, but what I'm interested in is uh, things like meditation, which help me confirm for myself what I can experience firsthand. And to me, that's all the difference in the world. Secondhand reports versus firsthand experiencing it for myself. Firsthand experiences of some of those core existential questions of being human. Who am I? What is the self? And how is it related to being conscious, being aware? This remarkable thing that we find ourselves right now having, being aware. It's, it's truly a remarkable thing. Indeed, one of the most interesting religion scholars alive today, Jeffrey Kripal at Rice University, has traced the ways that the history of religions can fruitfully be viewed as the history of human consciousness. Starting with the truly remarkable fact that, again, that any of us find us ourselves here and self-aware on this fragile blue marble we call Earth with more than two trillion galaxies, part of this 13.7 billion year old universe story. And as Kripal seeks to extrapolate further from that based on all that we humans and our consciousness have experienced both historically and here into the 21st century, he invites us to consider that consciousness as such can be viewed as the true sacred for us in the 21st century. Consciousness as such, awareness as such. There's a lot to unpack about what Kripal means by that. Uh, for now, I'll share at least a little more about what a focus on consciousness and awareness can yield. As Thompson's, Thompson's book title, Being, Waking, Dreaming, alludes to, 
One reason I'm grateful that Danny was willing to share earlier during the spoken meditation about her experience with dreams is that both dream work and meditation are two among many spiritual practices for exploring these existential questions of self and consciousness. Indeed, the Buddhist tradition, one of the core components, is challenging us to consider the ways that our self, our sense of ourselves, is much more of an influx process than it is a static thing or entity, that we are always already um, in process and changing. And the more you meditate and pay close attention to, the, um, to this process of yourself, Uh, the more you cultivate a sense of yourself, again, as this experiential process that is subject to constant change, what the Buddhists call impermanence. To say more about what I mean, I invite you on just a brief journey through thinking through what uh, some of our common human states of consciousness. Stick with me, and I think you'll see where we end up. Because if we pay increasingly close attention to the subtleties of our ever-shifting conscious and awareness experiences, here's a few trends we can begin to notice about our sense of self. Most of us probably right now, we feel like, I'm the self. It's like really obvious. Uh, but I want to invite you to notice the ways that that is shift and shifts and a little more complicated than that. Think about the last time you were really like engaged with something, really in the flow uh, of something. If you're really in the flow of something, you can begin to notice that your bodily sense of self recedes from the experience. Here's a second one. If we're bored and our mind is wandering, again, the the mentally imagined self of the past or future, that becomes predominant. So instead of Ourself right now, we're daydreaming about something in the future, something in the past, but our self is shifting. Or when we get tired and fall asleep, either right now or at night, what have you, uh, the sense of self also slackens. Images begin floating by. Our awareness becomes progressively absorbed in them. Eventually, in a dream, you may find yourself having a dream ego. So if you're remembering, the, you'll see, you're, if you do more dream work, you'll find that people that do dream work, they tell you to write your dream down in the first person. Because that's how we experience our dreams, right? I am suddenly on this street, and I am walking down it, and it's dark, and then suddenly I'm in this room, and that, that you experience it through this dream ego. Uh, here's one more. If you become aware that you are dreaming without waking up, and I suspect at least quite a few of you in this room have um, experienced this, you're experiencing a lucid dream. Has anyone ever had a lucid dream? All right, that's about the same. It was about two-thirds in the morning service as well. Uh, in which you are no longer simply the eye of the dream ego, but you're experiencing, experiencing the dream directly, but you're witnessing the dream state. Um, it's def- lucid dreaming is definitely a thing. They've done scientific studies of it. Um, I could say a lot more about that. But having traced, so having traced a little bit about how our sense of self shifts when we're engaged with something versus bored and daydreaming versus sleeping versus lucid dreaming, we can come full circle to meditation because an early threshold in practicing meditation is cultivating the capacity to witness ourselves. So instead of just being caught up in stuff, we develop this ability to witness. So instead of being angry at someone and just lashing out at them reactively, you can be like, ooh, I'm noticing anger arising in myself, you know, and then coupled with that, you know, just noticing, okay, right now, instead of just being in the world, okay, I'm breathing, I'm standing here, I'm feeling coolness, so noticing these things about yourself, witnessing them instead of just being caught up. We can begin to see things then as well that you don't have to necessarily believe all your thoughts, 
for example. Uh, and as we begin to take a step back uh, and reflect on the ways that these various states of consciousness, they're a lot more porous and overlapping is what people tend to start noticing as they pay attention to this. We can see that it's not so simple, for example, as that I'm either in one state of consciousness or another, that I'm either asleep or I'm either awake in this simple, clean-cut way. Um, two of the clearest examples, as, as I said earlier, are that if your mind is wandering in a daydream, there's a sense in which you are dreaming in a waking state. If you're having a lucid dream, there's a sense in which you are awake in a dream state. One reason why this is significant is that according to parts of the classical wisdom traditions, there are significant parallels between this physical experience that we have all the time of waking up from a dream, so being asleep and waking up into our, I'm assuming most of you are awake right now, right, into the dreaming and then waking up, as we do all the time, and two, parallels to the spiritual experience of being awake like we are right now and waking up into this spiritual experience called enlightenment. There is, however, a lot of confusion around what that word enlightenment means. As many of you have heard me say before, for example, Buddha is not the Buddha's name, right? Just like Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? That's another sermon, but it's the case, right? It means anointed one. It's a title, Jesus the Christ. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth with the name. The historical figure for Buddhism is, of the founder was Siddhartha Gautama, right? That was his name. Buddha is a title, and it simply means awakened one. Relatedly, enlightenment is not the best translation of the Pali word bodhi. A better translation of what the Buddha meant was the word awakening. A spiritual experience that, again, is said to be quite similar to our everyday experience of waking up from a dream, except that we're waking up further from our normal everyday waking state to see aspects of reality that are not everyday. If you think back to the old SAT analogy questions, which may give some of you nightmares, uh, the claim being made is that dreaming is to waking as waking is to awakening in the sense of enlightenment. But at this point, we're getting above my pay grade, so let's get back down to what I know more about in my own firsthand experience, and that is practicing meditation. When I first started getting serious and interested in meditation, reading about Buddhism in college, I went to the closest um, serious meditation center, which was in Asheville, about an hour away, and uh, uh, the which I, in an interesting synchronicity was about 30 minutes from where I was on this past retreat. And what they did, it was a Zen center, so they were you know, really excited to see me, greeted me very graciously and said, come over to this cushion and put me in a cushion uh, sitting on the floor and facing a white wall. And then they rang a bell, and 45 minutes later, they rang a bell again. And then they said, thank you so much for coming. <laughs> And it was sort of this deep-end approach of throw you in, sink or swim. It was all right. Uh, we try to be a little more humane and facilitate you through it on the, the meditation retreats here. Uh, and that's one reason we started this morning with the, the hymn Meditation on Breathing. Uh, this bre med breathing is not the only way to get started with meditation. It's one of the best ways, though, of simply focusing on your breath. Sitting, getting into a meditation posture, which can really be any posture, and then just breathing in and breathing out, and then saying one at the end of the out-breath. Breathing in, breathing out, saying two, and then continuing to say a higher number at the end of each out-breath until you get to 10, going no higher than 10, no lower than one. Anytime you get distracted, just go back to one, and slowly you start to build that concentration muscle. Now, it's not, you're not going to, on your first sit, unless you're some savant, going to be able to do one-pointed focused 
meditation for 45 minutes, you know, and, and achieve a blissful concentration state in the first time. It's like going to the gym. You don't bench press your body weight on day one unless you're just preternaturally gifted at uh, being strong, right? You're gonna, if you try that, you're going to crush your chest, right? Trying to bench press your body weight. So you build up incrementally. It's the same way with meditation. Then you might do things like noting, and I can teach you that practice if you're interested. And those are in the sort of pragmatic Dharma circles that I hang out in. There's a lot of emphasis on these sort of hardcore practices of breath counting and noting. Uh, but those can, if you do them enough, they can be, get you to some really interesting places, but they can also be really dry. And that's one reason we ch- um, chose for the final hymn to be this loving kindness practice, which is another huge part of the Buddhist tradition. That, that can also, bringing in these loving kindness practices can also remind you that of the point of any of this in the first place. And uh, Jack Cornfield was once asked, um, you know, is it just the, you know, breath breath counting and noting and these hardcore practices that can get you enlightened and what about loving kindness can you can you wake up through loving kindness practices and jack just smiled and said of course you can i mean if love can't wake someone up what can and i want to teach you just one more thing uh if you can uh if you'll experiment with me briefly, we'll do this quickly. Uh, if you'll take a meditation posture, if you're comfortable doing so, you can be, you know, I'll give you traditional instructions, but you sit however you want to sit, obviously. Uh, the traditional way is to sit with your feet flat on the floor, your back straight, relaxed but alert. Uh, uh, close your eyes if you're comfortable doing so, and just take one deep breath in. And out. And then allow yourself to reconnect with that flow that we were in with the singing of the last hymn of wishing for yourself and the others in this room or others on your heart and then eventually for all sentient beings that they be filled with loving kindness, that they be peaceful and at ease, that they be whole. Just take a second to breathe that in and get back in that flow. Loving-kindness practice is often done like that, of, of us offering and setting that intention and expending that effort. And we'll invite you to experience just one subtle flip of a way in which we can experience offering that back to ourselves. I want to invite you to imagine in your mind's eye three people who have deeply loved you in this life. It can be people alive or dead. It can be a pet if you want. Three people who come to mind who have deeply loved you. And then imagine them saying to you and opening your heart to what they want for you in your life. And to hear them saying to you, may you be happy. Breathe that in. Hear them saying to you, may you be healthy. Hear them saying to you, may you live with an open heart. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with an open heart. This experience of loving kindness, you can carry it with you always available to you. 
As you're ready to do so, you can open your eyes, you can keep them closed if you prefer. And as we prepare to go from this place, continue your journey with that kind of love, that kind of compassion. Continue your journey in love, care for one another, care for this one earth. Do justice, but do it in that way that's filled with compassion. It could be fierce compassion, but filled with compassion, filled with loving kindness. And whatever taste or touch you've experienced of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace and with great love.